We are going to start in Psalm 11. Actually, Lauren, do you mind if I pick on you and have you read Psalm 11? The whole thing. Yeah. It's only three pages. No, it's just. Okay. In the Lord I put my trust. How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? For look, the wicked bend their bow. They make ready their arrow on the string, that they may shoot secretly at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous, but the wicked and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. Upon the wicked he will rain coals. Fire and brimstone and burning wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. His countenance beholds the upright. Thank you. Mm -hmm. So what is your guys' sort of takeaway from that? just through reading through it. Any thoughts? What's your like main takeaway? Vengeance is my Yeah. Yeah. We don't put our trust in God when our enemies come. Um, we're gonna get rocked. We're not have a foundation. Oh, I mean, even when our enemies come and people are secretly doing things, you, you can still get rocked. So you better have a foundation if, if you're getting rocked. Yeah. Anyone else before we move on here? It's kind of like we're going to have people dislike us just because we're Christians. So we need to trust God and, and realize that there will be vengeance and there will be like God will take care of the wicked but mm. we're still going to be affected in this earth that's kind of what I take away yeah I just get the overall sense that I mean this seems like a chapter full of warning for those who are unrighteous, but there is a level of comfort in it, and the fact that it just talks about he beholds what's righteous, essentially. It just, it, he can see what's righteous and he can see what's unrighteous, and to know that there is a God that sees both and defines and knows the difference between the two, it's just kind of comforting. Mm. And I guess you don't have to. Play police myself, I guess. Yeah. Let's uh, turn the page a couple times over to Psalm chapter 5. See if you guys pick up a theme here. Starting in verse 4. For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness, nor shall evil dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand in your sight. You hate all workers 
of iniquity. You shall destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But as for me, I will come into your house in the multitude of your mercy. In fear of you, I will worship toward your holy temple. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before my face. Now Psalm 7, verse 6. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up because of the rage of my enemies. Rise up for me to the judgment you have commanded. So the congregation of the people shall surround you. For their sakes, therefore, return on high. The Lord shall judge the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to my integrity within me. O let the wickedness of the wicked come to an end, but establish the just. For the righteous God tests the hearts and the minds. My defense is of God, who saves the upright in heart. God is a just judge, and God is angry with the wicked every day. If you picked up on the theme, God is just, he loves the righteous, and he hates the wicked. Strong language. These are a few psalms that you don't hear read very much. We hear a lot about God's love, and here we're hearing about God abhorring, hating, bloodthirsty, violent, wicked people. Let's uh, turn to Acts now. We are in Acts. And Saul has sort of made himself an enemy of Christians. He has been rounding them up, arresting them, killing some. We saw him kill Stephen, the deacon. And because of him sort of attacking the church, the church has spread from Jerusalem into all the surrounding cities, and they have been dispersed into all the surrounding areas. And Saul, we sort of took a break from Saul as we read about Philip and we learned some more about him. And there's going to be a shift here where we've been following Peter mostly. We followed Philip for about a chapter. And now we're going to follow Paul a lot. And it starts here in chapter 9. So we can start in verse 1. It says, Then Saul, by the way, he's not Paul yet. He is Saul. Spoiler. <laughs> Spoiler. Uh, I've been using the name Paul, but it's actually, his, his name is Saul. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, by the way, a little side note, the way means Christianity. That's what it was called before we were given the name Christians. So you're going to see that a few more times through Acts before that shift happens. If he finds any of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. 
You see here that Saul is sort of enjoying his new job. He's still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. More than that, he's being ambitious, right? With this sort of new ministry that he's been given against God's people. When it says breathing threats and murder, I just imagine him like every waking moment and sleeping, just like muttering his hatred for them, mm. like, planning things, like just like his breathing is. Sorry, that, no, when you said his breathing, I just said, you know, oh, okay. yeah. Yeah. It's speaking more to his heart, right? Like, yeah. it's intense. He calls himself later zealous, speaking of this time in his life, zealous in persecuting Christians. So he, he's, again, ambitious. He's going above and beyond the calling that the Sanhedrin sort of gave to him. And I just want to say, and I don't say this to be critical, but, but so that you will test all things, there are some ministries in churches that offend God. And that's sort of a topic of another time. I don't want to get too deep into that, but I, I want you guys, when you see certain things happening at church, if it doesn't vibe with the Bible, if it goes against what God says... Like, we can label that a ministry, but it's not. It's offensive to God. And, and, and Saul thought he was doing the right thing. He was given this ministry by his religion, by the Sanhedrin, the religious sort of bigwigs of the time. And he is sent to arrest and kill anybody who spoke in the name of Jesus. And that was his ministry. He was serving his church in that way. So not everything with the label ministry is of God. So just, we can talk about that at a different time if, if you want. But let's focus here on Saul. He is taking his service to the Sanhedrin and to his religion very seriously here. Again, he's not asked to go to Damascus to find this thing. He's like, okay, I'll do it. You tell me. He goes to the high priest and says, hey, I've heard about some Christians up in Damascus. I want some letters. He probably wanted some support, maybe even a horse, donkey, something to help because this was a long trip. He is literally hunting down Christians far and wide. Damascus is some 150 miles from Jerusalem. So... We talked about Philip walking, you know, those 50 miles. I think that was uh, last week or the week before. Uh, and he was sort of being helped along the way by the, the, the Holy Spirit, possibly, you know, and getting sort of poofed uh, here and there. Uh, Saul wasn't. Saul was making a long trip with this sort of evil purpose. And some of you may... Remember, we, we looked at this passage earlier in the Acts series. We can turn to Proverbs chapter 6. I'm just going to read it again because it's, again, applicable. We start in verse 12. It says, A worthless person, a wicked man. Now, I'll pause here and sort of point out, as I have before, but the sort of wisdom literature has three categories of people. There's the wicked, the foolish, 
and the why. And this is a biblical theme, but mostly we see it in the wisdom literature. This is Psalms. We saw it a lot in the, in the passages we opened with, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. And these are the places where you see this sort of theme running throughout, the wicked, the foolish, and the wise. And sort of a quick overview is the wicked, you avoid them, you run from them, you do not befriend them. You, you, you separate completely from wicked people. That's what you do. The foolish, you draw boundary lines. You don't take advice from them. You don't let them control you. You don't spend too much time with them. And, you know, you sort of try and draw them in, into wisdom, but you don't follow them into their foolishness. The wise, you try and surround yourself with the wise. You, you ask advice from these people, seek wise counsel. You, you take those people out to dinner. You make them your friends. Those are the people that you want to spend all your time around. And of course, in ourselves, we need to recognize what's wicked in my life, what's foolish in my life, and, and, and how can I draw closer to God in wisdom and knowledge and understanding of, of his word, right? Again, Jesus, we don't have these categories of people biblically so, so that we can point the finger, right? Jesus says, call no man a fool. He says, if you call somebody a fool, you're in danger of hellfire. So we don't recognize somebody as a fool and say, you're a fool. The Bible says so. Even if you recognize that it's true, that's not how you conduct yourself. You use that information to realize how to conduct yourself with that person. Okay, so that's just a quick overview of the wisdom literature of the three categories of people that God gives. So we're talking about the wicked. A worthless person, a wicked man, walks with a perverse mouth. He winks with his eyes, he shuffles his feet, he points with his fingers. Perversity is in his heart. He devises evil continually, he sows discord, therefore his calamity shall come suddenly. Suddenly he shall be broken without remedy. These six things the Lord hates. Again, sort of the theme we're focusing on. I'm not trying to be negative here, but the hatred of God. It's a, it's a biblical theme, and it's one that we're, we're taking up tonight. These six things the Lord hates. Yes, Seven are an abomination to him, a proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift in running to evil, a false witness who speaks lies, and one who sows discord among brethren. In Acts, we have seen Saul sow discord with Stephen. He sort of led a mob to argue with Stephen against what Stephen believed. That argument then is taken before the Sanhedrin, which turns to violence, and Stephen is falsely accused before that violence takes place. People lie about him. Again, Saul is a big part of this. So he is, verse 19, a false witness. He speaks lies. And one who sows discord, right? We've seen that in Saul's life. He then is the main stone thrower in the, the killing, the murder, the, the stoning of Stephen. And at the end of Stephen's murder, they sort of honor Saul and they lay their cloaks before him. And that's when he sort of takes up this mantle of persecuting the church. And that sort of becomes his 
job. So verse 17 says, a lying tongue, we've seen that already, hands that shed innocent blood, we've seen that against Stephen. And he, again, he takes up this mantle, verse 18 says, a heart that divides wicked plans and feet that are swift in running to evil. Saul is again going above and beyond. He's going further than they've asked him to be. He is planning this long journey to shed more innocent blood. Paul tells us elsewhere that he considers himself blameless according to the law. There's that proud look that it talks about in verse 17. So that's seven of the seven. (laughs) Chief of seven. Yeah. God, at this point in his life, hates Saul. God hates Saul. Hates him. He's a wicked man. And God is against him. He has positioned himself against God, and God says, You are my enemy, and I hate you. Verse 3, going back to Acts chapter 9, as we continue this (laughs) sort of amazing story, I know you all know it. Verse 3 says, as he journeyed, he came near Damascus. So this is towards the end of this long trip. And suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground. And heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now, how I sort of imagine this, and if I were to make the movie, right? They're going along and there's sort of like that inception noise, boom! Like, I mean, knocks them on their feet. Everybody's blown back. And there's sort of this bubble that surrounds Saul himself and a mighty rushing wind inside that bubble that is just shining bright and loud. And elsewhere we know that the people that are there, they hear the voice, but they don't understand the words. So outside of the bubble, there's these words coming out, whether it's in a different weird language or if it's just muffled by the bubble, but they don't understand. We hear a voice. For sure it's a voice, but what is it saying? We don't know. And then in another verse, it actually says that some saw and didn't hear anything. And there was like mixed things going on. Yeah. So this is happening right in front of them. They see the light. They hear the voice. But they don't know exactly what's going on. Only Saul does. And Jesus says, inside that bubble, this personal moment with Saul, why are you persecuting me? What you say to Jesus' people, what you do to Christians, you do and you say to Jesus personally. To Jesus himself, you are doing those things. You are saying those things to Jesus. How do you treat Christians? Not just your friends, not just the people that we interact with, that person that bugs you at church, that person you know who's a Christian that you don't really want to hang out with. How are you treating them? There's uh, 
and I've seen and, and laughed at many a comedic video about Christian culture. And I laughed at him and laughed at him and laughed at him until I noticed that the people that were showing me these videos weren't laughing along. Ha! <laughs> Isn't this funny what we do? They were laughing at me. They were laughing at Jesus. Oh, those Christians. They were calling themselves Christians, but that thing in culture, that's stupid, that's weak, that's lame. That's hilarious because it sucks. And they are speaking against Jesus. Now, I'm not saying that you can't laugh at yourself and that you can't laugh at the culture that you sort of live in. I'm not saying that, but be careful that you don't sort of slip into mocking our Lord Jesus. It's, it's, a, it's a close line, and you don't notice it until you do. And it's very important to pay attention. When we talk bad about each other, when we gossip behind people's backs, we are blaspheming and persecuting Jesus. Very serious thing to realize that what happens to Christians happens to Jesus. Jesus himself said that whatever you do to the least of these is done to me. And in that moment, he's talking about those who are hungry, those who are needy, those who need comfort, those who need a friend. And when you see these people, you need to see them as if it's Jesus himself. How do you treat people? Are you treating them like Jesus is sitting in the same room, sitting across from you, sitting on the same couch? We need to. Obviously, we don't worship those people, but we realize that how we treat them is as if Jesus was sitting on the couch with us and sitting across from us and hanging out with us and going to our church. Um, this next part may not be in some of your, your Bibles. There's sort of some versions that don't have this. It says, uh, it is hard for you. Jesus continues speaking to Saul. It is hard for you to kick against the goats. What? <laughs> like, we don't understand this language. Saul would have. This is speaking of a stubborn ox. And when you were a farmer, you'd have this sort of long stick with a very sharp spike on the end of it. And if your ox wasn't doing what it was supposed to be doing, if it was being stubborn, you'd pull left, you'd go right, you'd pull harder and it would kick at you. And when it kicked at you, you didn't want it to hit you, so you'd jab it with your stick with a long, sharp, pointy thing. And the harder the thing kicks, the deeper the thing goes into their flesh. And Jesus is saying, that's you, Saul. And in Romans 2, it says, but in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath. That's very much what Jesus is saying right here to Saul. You are only hurting yourself by your continued disobedience. Saul heard Stephen's sermon, probably heard many other people's sermons. He may have even seen Jesus in person. He has heard the good news. And as we talked about last week, he is disobeying the good news actively. 
He's kicking against the goats. Verse 6, so he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord. That's a good start. Wait, which verse are you in? Verse 6. Mm-hmm. That might not be in some of your... Yeah, that's not in your version either. Oh. It's what we call a textual variant. There's lots of them. It's okay. <laughs> but that's a good start. He is trembling and astonished. Proverbs says, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. So he's trembling and he's astonished and he calls out, Lord. What do you want me to do? Now, it took Jesus himself coming down, knocking Saul on his butt to put him in his place. But in a matter of a few moments, uh, this wicked, stubborn ox of a man, we see him submit to Jesus. We see him change within a couple of minutes. And he asks a question that every Christian should. Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. (laughs) Jesus gives Saul a pretty simple command. And sometimes the beginning of a new path, whether it's a a new Christian coming into faith, or it's a, a new season in life, when you're going into that new path, it'll start with a very simple command. And often our response is, God, that's too easy. <laughs> like, I don't think you heard my question right. What I said was, what do you want me to do? Like, big picture, all around, what do you want me to, to do? And he's like, obey. No matter how small you think this little teeny thing is, do it. Do what I said, because if you can't do this teeny tiny thing, you're definitely not going to do what I want you to do with the rest of your life. Obey. Did Saul have to? No. He did not. A lot of people were arguing with me. That's fine. Saul did not have to obey. He could have gotten it. What are you doing? You're showing up. You're blinding me. You're knocking me on my face. Like, what is going on? He could have continued to kick against the goats. He had done so, so far. God has been calling his name. Moses did. Moses did. Obviously, this encounter changed things drastically for Saul. But he still had a choice. He could continue to kick against the goats. He could continue to disobey God, continue to ignore God's calling on his life. Or he could choose to obey Jesus, whom Saul had up to this point hated vehemently. Let's continue in verse 7. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. We're going to talk a little bit more about that in sort of a little commercial uh, sale this Saturday, and we're going to unpack that a little bit more in a, in a different passage. But for now, we'll, we'll move on. Sailor is 6 p.m. Saturday night. <laughs> <laughs> Check the Facebook page. Uh, shameless plug there. 
They heard a voice, but they saw no one. And that's why my imagination goes with this sort of bump on wind and like... It's a theory. It's not biblical, but you know, it's, it's, how, I, it's how I see it. <laughs> then Saul arose, verse 8, from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. Now, this it says kind of the same thing twice. Right? Verse 7, they heard a voice, they see, they saw no one. And then Saul, when he opens his eyes, he sees no one. What? Oh, mine just words about it. Yes. And I, I like the NASB better. It's a little closer to the original. In the Greek, it's a separate word. It's not the same thing. It's not the same word. Those who traveled with Saul, they saw no person. They saw nobody. They just heard a voice. Okay. And Saul, when he opened his eyes, he saw nothing. <laughs> mm-hmm. And that's that's what the original Greek says. It, it's not that he didn't see a person. It means he, see, he saw nothing. He was completely blinded by the glory of Jesus. <laughs> but they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. Now, again... They didn't have to do that. Saul was sort of leading this whole group. He told them, take me to Damascus. He's actually obeying Jesus for the first time. And he was three days without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying, and in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hands on him so that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here... He has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way and entered the house. And laying hands on him, he said, Brother Saul. This is a a powerful moment for him to call Saul brother. He knows who this Saul is. But he trusts Jesus more than what he knows. And what other people have told him. And so he goes in and says, Brother Saul. The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once. And he arose and was baptized. And when he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. This is an incredible story of how an enemy of God, a child of the devil, as Jesus would have called him in life, a son of wickedness, to use a term 
of the Old Testament and of the wisdom literature can be saved by the loving grace of Jesus. Can be can actually change that sonship, that being a son of the devil, a son of wickedness, can change his sonship by the power of the Holy Spirit and because of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross to become a child of God the Father. Saul was a wicked man. By every biblical definition of the word, he was a wicked, vile, violent man and hated by God. However, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Do you know who penned those words? <laughs> this guy, this man hated by God, this wicked, evil man, later pens that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for that. That hits a personal note for Saul. He knows exactly what he was doing when Jesus died. And then after he died, Saul knows exactly where he was spiritually at that moment. When he, when he writes that, he's remembering what Jesus has done for him personally. And without Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we are all hated by God. We are all wicked. We are all sinners. We shouldn't put ourselves in this other separate category that we're somehow better than others. Before we met Jesus, we were wicked. We were enemies of God. However, we've been called out of our sin, just as Saul was, and been perfectly purified because of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. How is it possible? Because God is love, 1 John says. And a lot of people will say, well, yeah, God's love, but he's also wrath. Scripture, like chapter and verse that for me. It doesn't say it. It does not say that God is wrath. He has wrath. He has anger. And when he, he does, and when you continue to position yourself against him, you better watch out. But even when God is angry, and even when he hates someone, he still loves them. Jesus said, love your enemies. Not, love your enemies, but I hate them. <laughs> God's not a hypocrite. Love your enemies. Even if there's animosity. Even if it's hard. Even if you're angry at them, love them. God hopes that they change, even if he's angry at them, even if he hates them. Let's go to Ezekiel 33. This will be our final verse. And I'm going to leave you with a story. Ezekiel 33, verse 10. How <laughs> Ezekiel 33, verse 10. Therefore you, O son of man, say to the house of Israel, Thus you say, if our transgressions and our sins lie upon us, and we pine away in them, how can we then live? Say to them, as I live, says the Lord God, 
I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways, for why should you die, O house of Israel? God is angry with the wicked every day. He hates wickedness. He hates the wicked. But he doesn't want them to stay wicked. He doesn't want them to stay that way. And I don't fully understand it. I struggle with be angry and do not sin. (laughs) I can't even comprehend righteous hatred. Everything about God is righteous. He is always, only, ever righteous and good. So if he hates... It's not hatred the way we understand it. We have defined hatred as the absence of love or the opposite of love. Clearly, that's not how God sees it. Just like our definition of love is different than God's. We read it in 1 Corinthians 13. That's how God defines love. He defines hatred differently also. The only way that I've ever sort of understood this is a few years back, We were living with my dad and grandpa, and a hummingbird laid these two eggs in a net, made this awesome tiny little nest that's like that big, two eggs in it. Hummingbirds apparently only ever lay two eggs. Cool. And we saw them hatch. We saw two of them. We would see the hummingbird come and feed both of them and buzz off, because once they hatch, they don't sit on the eggs anymore. They're out hunting, and they come back and just feed periodically. So most of the time, those two babies are hanging out in the nest by themselves. Well, one day I came home from work, and I see that one of the baby hummingbirds is hanging upside down from this nest by one tiny little claw hanging upside down. I was like, is that a thing? (laughs) Oh, my God. That's not like, they're not bats, right? They're hummingbirds. I don't think that's a thing. So I jumped on the computer, did some research. Definitely not you a thing. You didn't save it. I was. I didn't want to mess with it. <laughs> I wanted to make. A thing I, I don't know about humming. You're like, goodbye. I don't know about hummingbirds. I'm getting there. I'm getting there. So I go out. I look a little closer. The other baby is gone. So my thought is, shoot, maybe some sort of hawk or crow came, swooped down, stole one, knocked the other out. I don't know. But one's gone, the other's hanging outside. I'm like, shoot, this is not a thing. Like, the internet internet told me it's not a thing. They're supposed to be in the nest. So I'm out there, sort of awkwardly. I should have got a ladder, but I didn't. I'm like, all right, like, go back in there. And it's like not letting go of the, the nest. So I'm like, ah, stupid thing. So I have to unhook it from the nest. So I kind of, and it finally unhooks, but it like freaks out, freaks out, starts like fluttering around. It can't fly and falls out of my hands and loud on the cement. And I'm like, I killed it. Oh crap. But I didn't, it was alive. It was alive. And I was like oh, freaking out. My heart's beating like crazy. And I was like, that was like a six foot fall. I'm not a tall guy, but I mean, it's up here. It's like six feet and it's like this small. And so I like ran, got a ladder, set it up. And I like 
pick up the thing and it's like every time I touch it it like flutters its its wings so I like grab its wings and hold them down and I, I crawl back up there and I put it back in its nest I'm like cool it's chilling it's chilling all right get down put the ladder away go back out to the living room look out the window it's hanging out like no oh, stop that it's hanging out of the nest by one thing but this time its leg is inside the nest and so it's even worse because the leg is like <laughs> out like that like bent all weird looking like it's broken and I'm like stupid thing like stay in the nest what are you doing so I go get the ladder set it up go back up there grab the thing put it back in its nest good okay I don't put the ladder away because I'm like is this gonna be a thing so I set it there and it's sitting there for a while the mom comes back and it's like tweeting like crazy and it like goes and checks on it and a little bit later I go out there, the stupid thing's hanging out of the nest again. And again, I, I struggle with be angry and do not sin, right? Uh, so I am not perfectly righteous and have perfectly righteous anger. And I, I started swearing, like, this stupid blanking bird, like, why isn't it doing, I'm trying to save its life. And I was like, right? I was not holy in that moment. I was, I was angry. It's better than me though, because I was like, Ugh, it's just a hummingbird. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> You're trying to save it. I was mad. <laughs> and I was angry. And this went on for days, by the way. Falls out. Oh, and and I and I would I made this little thing that if it jumped out, it would land in the thing. <laughs> And, and I was angry with this stupid little hummingbird every day. <laughs> but I sort of loved it. <laughs> and I even hated it a little bit. And I was angry because I wanted it to choose life. <laughs> like, I'm literally trying to save your life right now. <laughs> and you are choosing death every day over and over and over and over and I am like you mother like <laughs> and eventually the thing I built for my dad helped me build this thing where it just sort of laid there it wasn't nestled in the nice little nest but we left it in the basket and the, the mom would come and feed it she couldn't get in it so we had to lower it it was a whole thing right? <laughs> but I was literally angry but I was also praying like God I want this thing to choose life like help it to survive and also I also felt like if it dies now I'm gonna be even more angry yeah. right like yeah. what it was all that for yeah right and so I was like help this stupid thing to live and help it change the world like <laughs> because this has been a, a really ridiculous saga I am frustrated right so and long story short too late, sorry. Uh, it <laughs> learns to fly. And it it stayed in the basket and, you know, obviously with a lot of help, but it chose life. And it started buzzing around the yard. It would land on the thing. It would sort of look at me. It would buzz right up to me. It would go off. <laughs> My dad helped teach it how to fly. He would, like, pick it up from the grass and, like, 
it's like right so we're like trying to teach this thing to be a bird and but it eventually lives and does really well it's hunting for itself we see it catching gnats and like sucking on plants and it's like buzzing around and and weeks later it would buzz up land on the plant check me out buzz up to me go off and i was like God help it change the world. So I know it. I know it lived. I don't know if it changed the world, but this story taught me a little bit more about hating something and loving it at the same time. Being furious with it every single day because it will not choose life, but really hoping that it changes and chooses life. Saul's conversion changed the course of his life. And I love that song, that simple obedience, it changes history. Saul's conversion changed the course of not only his life, but history. He has written more books of the Bible than any other author. He has ministered to countless people in his area and now worldwide. This guy was a wicked man who was hated by God, who hated God, who was changed by God's love and grace, came to the knowledge of the truth, and led millions, billions maybe, to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. So ask the simple question, Lord, what do you want me to do? And my prayer for you is that, like that little hummingbird, that you will change the world. <laughs> Let's pray. Dear God, we love you and we praise you. And God, I thank you so much for not just the gift that you have given us of, of salvation from your wrath, but God, I thank you for your love and for your grace and for loving us even when we are stupid little birds who want to choose death every day. God, I pray that you will give us an answer to that question, no matter how small it is. What do you want us to do, God? And I pray that we will take whatever your calling, whether it be a next step or a massive calling for our life, that we will take it seriously, that we will rush to it as Philip did when you told him to approach that chariot, that we will not hesitate, that we will seek what you want for our lives, that we will become the people that you see us as. And God, I thank you that you don't view us as wicked sinners anymore, even though we fail, even though we still miss the mark, 1 John tells us that if you're a son of God or a daughter of God, you cannot sin. You don't see us as a sinner anymore. You see us as pure. You see us as covered by the righteousness of Christ. And I thank you for that. And we love you, God. And I pray that you will empower us to do that calling that you have for us, no matter how big, no matter how small, that you will speak to us and help us and empower us to do what you have us to do. We love you and praise you. I pray that you bless the rest of this evening and uh, help us to be glorifying to you, God, in everything we do and say. In Jesus' name, amen.